Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let me start with this. Yesterday, the news of a 38.7% drop in the GDP and a $120.4 billion deficit, both just in the second quarter of 2020. And if you add to that our trillion-dollar national debt and the announced drop in Canada's credit rating to AA by Fitch, and they, by the way, publicly worry about this country's ability to pay back. Then there are the arbitrary spending decisions by Mr. Trudeau, like his $37 billion EI CERB adjustment two days after proroguing Parliament. How do you assess all of this? Uh, well, as I said the other night, late in the night in my uh, in my victory speech, I'm very worried about the future of the country. I love the country. As you said, I served in uniform. I'm a patriot. And I want to make sure that my children, Molly and Jack, have the same opportunity. You know, sky's the limit should be the, the rule for any Canadian uh, child. And I'm worried that's going to be constrained by out-of-control spending, high taxes. And really, the, the Trudeau government had an ideological approach. They don't like manufacturing in Ontario. They don't like the oil and gas industry out west. They don't like mines. You know, they're they're turning their backs on many parts of our economy that help build the country. And boy, Roy, when we're coming out of this massive drop in our GDP and, and our economic performance, we can't pick or choose where Canadians work. We need to value the importance and nobility of work providing you for your family and building the country. And that will be what I'm pushing as a Conservative leader. Let me ask you this. Who has the stop sign, Mr. O'Toole? You're not particularly enthusiastic, as I understand it, about a quick federal election. I get it. Many Canadians appreciate the money the federal government has put on the table to provide a backstop during the pandemic. But somebody's going to have to recognize the generational debt and if Mr. Trudeau and his new team, which is how he likes to phrase things, return to Parliament following prorogation with a throne speech which commits to plunging Canada into further huge debt, what will you do? We're going to present some alternative ideas and vision over the coming months for Canadians. We know that Mr. Trudeau is playing political games. He prorogued Parliament because a few of our MPs, Pierre Polyev and Michael Barrett, we're making life very uncomfortable. Bill Morneau had to resign after it was revealed he helped advance the case for the WE charity to, to benefit from a program that was kind of designed for them by Mr. Morneau, who'd taken trips, who had family employees. The, the entitlement of Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Morneau, and the people around him uh, led to questions about the ethics of this government. And so they prorogued Parliament. Now they're going to try and and use some marketing language and, and bribe taxpayers with their own money. Uh, but it's really rearranging the deck chairs as the Titanic is sinking. So we, we have to show Canadians an alternative, criticize Mr. Trudeau. But I want us to do so much more, and you're going to see that in the coming weeks. An election, working toward an election, though, if the speech from the throne carries with it the promise of huge new debt, that election drive would not be off the table for you, I hope. Uh, we're we're sharpening our saber. And what I'm so proud about, Roy, our party, we've got great MPs. Our grassroots supporters are the best in the country. We have no election debt from last October. The Liberals still do. So they're the ones, uh, you know, rattling the saber. Ours is sharper. And so if they want to play this game, I think 
uh, Ontarians remember when David Peterson tried to get cute, and uh, uh, he he was defeated trying to play games with with using an election to avoid accountability. So this is what the Liberals do. Their only driving force is to remain in power so they could advance uh, things for themselves and their insiders. Uh, I'm going to be providing an alternate vision, opposing them, and at the right time, uh, uh, showing a, a clear sign of non-confidence. We know, you know, I know, that Mr. Trudeau's representatives are listening to this interview. They're going to be following you wherever you go, listening to whatever you say. Let me ask you this. And you just mentioned your two MPs, Mr. Barrett and Mr. Polyev, closing in on Mr. Trudeau in the Parliamentary Ethics and Finance Committee investigations into his behavior. He's already had two convictions of Conflict of Interest Act violations. We had Mary Dawson, uh, the former commissioner on this program, a few weeks ago, who suggested maybe the prime minister had a degree of blindness when it came to ethical decisions. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Are you worried about Mr. Trudeau's ethics, his ability to tell the truth? He, he shut down through proroguing parliament. Those two parliamentary committees investigating him, he, and again, he already has two convictions uh, on his record. Do you have concerns about the prime minister's ethics? Absolutely, I do, Roy. And I have from the very beginning, you know, look, you were one of the strong voices for Mark Norman. You'd know that the first liberal cabinet meeting, they tried to cancel a million, uh, hundreds of millions of dollar naval contract with a shipyard in Quebec. Yes. Uh, uh, and when they were caught, they threw a, 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 an incredible Canadian named Mark Norman under the bus. And then when they had to settle the lawsuit, they used Canadian taxpayer money. To, to make up for maligning the name of a great Canadian like Admiral Mark Norman, who every day of his life he was either in a military family or had a military family of his own. Um, I, I, I thought it was atrocious. That was the first few weeks of their government, Lloyd. The, the first uh, ethical violation, Ms. Dawson's report also should startle Canadians, where the Prime Minister said he views himself more as a representative for Canada. He doesn't get into the details. He's He's more like a spokesperson or a celebrity model of some sort. He doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of decisions. Well, sorry, the prime minister has to understand the threats and opportunities for our country and, and fight for Canadian families. Uh, you're not a, a casual passenger for our country. And so they're going to see with me, I'm not a celebrity, but I've got a track record of getting things done in the military and the private sector, and that's what I'll do for Canadians, get us back on track. So you don't have a, photo, a phone full of photographs of yourself? <laughs> no. And what, what's funny is, because I decided at around 16 to join the military, Roy, I really set a, a goal. I wanted to go to military college, which was going to pay for my school. You know, we came from a very modest middle-class background. My dad works at GM. And then I put myself, my wife Rebecca and I, put myself through law school while I was in the reserves. We didn't have a lot, but we had a little home in Halifax, and we value everything we've worked hard for, just like 99.9% .9 of your listeners, Roy. And I don't think the Liberals realize that they have grown completely out of touch with Canadians, and I include uh, Miss Freeland in this as well. If they have a throne speech full of uh, buzzwords and billions, uh, you're going to be hearing an alternative vision for us as we prepare to take the reins to get things back on track. Okay. Well, I know we asked for 10 minutes and we're just about out of that time, but I just have three questions for you and you can ask, answer them as quickly as you wish. 
sure. the issue of race and diversity in our society now has never been more necessary to be dealt with. I shouldn't say necessary to be dealt with, but it really is on the front burner of everyone's attention right now. And it, I hope it stays there. What is your vision for the Conservative Party of Canada on the issue of race? And you have a remarkable uh, woman who is running for the leadership, Leslyn Lewis. What happens to your party as far as that's concerned? Well, listen, I was very impressed with Dr. Lewis and was texting with her this morning. I want to get her into the house as part of our team. I think she's got a lot to offer. And our party, we are a party of liberty and, and meritocracy. We want to see zero roadblocks for anyone. We have a zero tolerance for racism, anti-Semitism. Intolerance of, of any kind is, is really a cancer that we have, to, we have to stamp out. And I'll tell you, Roy, a few years ago or a year and a half ago, um, I had a constituent, uh, uh, someone of color that, was was convinced they were being discriminated against by the federal government department they worked for. I agreed and I advocated and was pushing the the government. I I want to make sure that anyone in Canada. And I said this the other night, regardless of race or creed, regardless of how long you've been here. The great thing about Canada is you should have the same opportunity of success than anyone else. And as conservatives, that we want to instill hard work responsibility, helping others, but striving to succeed. And that will be at the core of what we talk about. And I think some people are going to be surprised. We're going to be attracting some great people, as Leslie Lewis did in her race, and speaking to more and more Canadians, hoping that they see themselves reflected in our party. Final question I have for you, then. Uh, can, I'll put this together, ask you to put it together. If I say Western alienation, and then add climate change and Canada's energy sector, how do you put those three together? We've got to be proud of our energy sector, Roy. And this is what's crazy. On Trudeau's first trip abroad, he, as Prime Minister, he mocked the sector. Compare Canadian resources, oil and gas, forestry, mines, minerals, even agriculture, with any other country in the world. We have the highest standards of environmental mitigation. You can actually trust what our regulators say. You can't trust what comes out of Russia or Saudi Arabia or, or Venezuela. We should be proud. We should strive to get emissions down as much as possible. We should strive to engage more with Indigenous Canadians. That's why I was really upset when Trudeau cancelled Northern Gateway. He let down, he failed Indigenous Canadians who were one-third owners of that line. But let's, let's talk about the reality of the fact we can have an approach for the environment and reducing carbon emissions, while also recognizing if Canadian resources disappear, they will be replaced with the worst human rights defenders, the worst environmental record, no care about Indigenous or other issues. So let's stop this left attack at every working family in Canada and start being proud of what we do and strive to be even better. It's outrageous that we import 700,000 plus barrels of oil from other parts of the world daily because we don't have an infrastructure, pipeline infrastructure to get our own resources to our other provinces and out of the country. Mr. O'Toole, I'm going to leave you with this. I uh, yesterday decided I was just going to call to some people who know you. And whatever they told me about you, I was going to broadcast or publish. And in, in my editorial piece, I, uh, I wrote what um, Michel Drapeau, 34 years, a member of the military, a colonel when he retired, an independent uh, military lawyer now, had to say about you. He spoke very positively. He said you brought a lot of uh, cordiality and, uh, and, and, and good 
will to the Veterans Affairs Ministry, which had not been there. And he said if you'd stayed longer, it would have only improved. Then I spoke with Don Sorokin from uh, from Equitas, and they, of course, the group that had the uh, class action lawsuit against the government. And you and I tweeted about that not long ago. Uh, and uh, Mr. Sorokin also said, uh, spoke very, very highly of you, thinks very highly of you. So that, uh, whether they spoke highly of you or not, I was going to tell the world what they had to say. I wanted to share that. Well, they're wonderful people. They're both great advocates for veterans, and Michelle had a great career in the Canadian Armed Forces. I, I also surround myself with great people, Roy, so I would never claim credit for some of the progress we made. I, but I am known as someone that's not about the selfies. That's not about image. I can't compete with Justin on name recognition. But in terms of commitment to this country, uh, I think more Canadians are going to see my commitment is deep, and I'm, I'm here to help. I'm not here for myself. NBA players began the call for postponing games in protest to racial injustice. Players refused to play. The league supported them. Teams supported them. Then Major League Baseball followed, and then the National Hockey League. Will you share with us your thoughts on this type of action by players, professional leagues, and teams? Well, as far as uh, racial injustice for um, American, Afro-American, sports figures have always led the charge. You can go back and look in the 60s, where there was a summit with Jim Brown, uh, Lou Alcindor at that time. They all came together. Um, they were joined by Harry Belafonte and Sidney Portier in the entertainment business. And they've always led or supported um, for racial injustice. So it's not new. Um, you know, it's something the, the players are financially secure enough um, that they can walk out and say that this isn't right. And... You know, I'm I'm awfully proud that they're that they're doing it. I think that we got a tangible return when they discovered uh, who Donald Sterling was, and uh, the league expelled uh, him, which they should have. And the expulsion, um, I think, it helped for a period of time. But <clears throat> on the ground, the American black male and female still have the tangible threat of the way the United States police forces are organized. I want to talk to you about the, uh, the police issue. And we talked about that off the air, but in a, in a general sense, stepping away from the athletes for a moment and, and police just in the, in our daily lives, uh, in this country and in the United States, how does racism, I didn't ask you this during our initial conversation, where does racism uh, appear in the daily lives of people of color, uh, African Canadians, African Americans? And I'm going to just add to this because I lived in Quebec recently for nine years, and I'm not going to get into the whole English-French issue, but I would find on occasion maybe more than on occasion, I would find there was behavior directed my way that wouldn't have been if I hadn't been an Anglo. So is that, in a much broader sense, 
what the experience would be of African Canadians, African American people of color. When you start your day, you go out, you know you're going to be exposed to, you're not, you know you're going to be confronting racism along the way. Well, the problem, and Roy, you know, you don't have to uh, be gentle in in, uh, in your question. The reality for all people from the beginning of time, right? Man has found a way to dislike his fellow man. Yes. And two of the initial uh, racial barriers are language and color. Um, you take the growth of Canada, right? We'll stay north for a short period, and then I'll go south. The growth of, of Toronto, the GTA, has been through immigration. Pierre Trudeau opened the doors to grow the country through immigration. But those immigrants, Italian, German, Scandinavian, um, they were all felt the racial barriers because they couldn't speak the King and Queen's English. And so that's always the first barrier for any immigrant uh, into a new society. The tougher one for uh, black and brown skinned people are that it's distinguished with them easier um, because we are given perceptions that, you know, a lot of it is on falsehood. Some of it is factual um, that we're not going to get along or they don't understand us. But from the beginning of time, man has found a way to protect the natural resources um, which empower people for wealth, uh, sustainability, to protect those against outsiders. An outsider can be anyone, Jewish, black, German, uh, of any descent. So, um, you know, that's the way I learned it from... Uh, I grew up in a small town in in Ohio, <clears throat> and, you know, my grandmother on my mother's side was white, and so I lived in a very integrated, I had aunts that were white. My grandparents had eight kids. My grandfather and grandmother both migrated from Marshall, uh, Tennessee. Um, my great-grandfather, um, he was born into slavery, was freed on the emancipation in, in 65 at 16 years old. Um, but Tennessee at that time, to maintain control, um, the version of the Ku Klux Klan was called the Pale Face Riders. And those Pale Face Riders used intimidation uh, in voting rights, or they didn't let them vote. So it's always been there. The issue is, how do you get something tangible we know that right now, by what everyone is doing in sports, that the awareness is at an all-time high. But the failure that ethnic groups have made is how do you make get a tangible return when the awareness is high? And, and since Martin Luther King uh, was killed, um, blacks in the United States have had a tough time understanding a tangible return is not laws. A lot of laws have been approved, but true tangible return we're seeing is through uh, the guys that decided at Samsung and Apple to put a camera in a phone. So with the code of silence, the blue code of silence that the police have, as first responders, uh, they've not been accountable. They've always been able to protect each other. 
And you have to remember that in all Ku Klux Klan memberships, the local sheriffs were members, and they were the enforcement. So when you have the first responder being the enforcer with the heavy hand, um, it becomes very tough. Coach, let's carry on. Let's talk about uh, about policing and police brutality, which though that word, that phrase is brought up time and time again in the United States. And I think in, in and I've started to hear it in Canada as well, more than I have in the past. Where do police fit into this picture? Well, again, they're the they're the first responders to a conflict. And in any conflict, um, the first responders can do a great job or they can make a mistake. And what we've been able to see through third-party validation with these uh, cameras in the phone is that they do make mistakes. And historically, without that third-party validation, they've gotten away with these mistakes. They've done bad things. And, you know, I don't think it's, it's 98% of the police force, but the 2% give the 98 a very bad look. Uh, if, if, your, if your listeners went on and did a search for uh, police shootings um, of black men, in the last three years we've seen numerous black men that the police report is entirely different from the third-party validation of someone holding up their phone videotaping what was going on and it's and it's an issue it's a real issue um like i said i just think uh since martin luther king uh was killed that black americans and you know i think uh, black canadians do a poor job of what they want out of it like you have all this awareness how do you get something tangible uh lots of laws are on the books but to enforce the laws, you normally have to have a lot of money to go to court. And, you know, that's one of the things that that I'm pushing for is not the defunding of the police department. Because if you defund the police department, you're going to take away all the young cops who have and understand social justice and equality. You're going to leave the older guys because of seniority the way the union is built, who are hardcore and it will take longer for it to change. So we have to stop their immunity from prosecution. We have to find a way to put body cams on them so that we can get third-party validation. And someone said, well, you know, if you put body cams on them, you know, they can erase them. No, because the body cams, the footage is sent to an off-site server. So it has a third-party validation. And... That is the quickest way that I know to get to the truth. Uh, but the problem is for minorities, because a lot of them don't understand the way what the process is. The process is tied to how can you integrate an item into the process um, that becomes a first mover in information, factual information that's non-disputable, that's undisputable. So... Is it your is it your sense that uh, or your experience that police and I, we can differentiate between Canada or the, and the United States if you wish? It's your experience that I'm I'm asking for. Is it your sense, your experience that police and that there's a racism component built into the job? 
Well, or it becomes it, part of the job. It becomes part of the job. All right. They're human beings. They are fearful of, of altercations that they could be injured. And that's just the human nature. The issue at the end of the day is that when they do something wrong, that they can no longer have immunity. They can no longer hide behind a blue shield of that we're going to protect our own, even when they make a mistake. And that's what we have to get to. And the sooner we get to it, the better. Uh, in my opinion, the recent announcement that it's going to take five years to put body cams on the police officers in the greater Toronto area is it's wrong. And it can be cured. You know, all they need to do is, you know, Canadians are great givers. In the worst of crises, Canadians have fought in wars <clears throat> and been there on the charitable side. All they need to do is set up a fund with Toronto Foundation to buy the cameras, and I guarantee the money will flow in to buy the cameras. No way it takes five years. No way it should take five years. That's correct. This should be done. This has to be done and can be done quickly. It can, it can and should be done quickly. And you said O'Toole was on earlier. And, you know, O'Toole, if he wants social justice for all, the cameras provide it for everyone, regardless of color, regardless of their ethnic background. The cameras provide third-party validation that a jury can see what the truth was. Yeah, and I would imagine there are police officers who would be very much in favor of having those body cams as well. Yeah, the, the 98% would. Yeah. 2% would not. Coach, I have only about one minute left. Time goes by way too quickly. Where are we going to be? You mentioned five years, five years for the body cameras. If I can turn that a little bit around, where do you think we're going to be five years from now? Well, if we don't have the body cameras, we're going to be in the same position. We're going to be in the same position because they can write the report and cover for each other, and no one ever has been able to challenge the lies that are in those reports. And does so, it come down then fundamentally, I'm sorry to rush you here because we only have seconds, but does yeah. fundamentally the issue of racism come down to, to police? It comes down to the first responders, which is the police. I thank you very much for, for talking to me. I, again, I as you said, and I knew you didn't really want to do this show, I, I hope you thought it was worthwhile. Right, it was, it was worthwhile because we're all looking for the same thing. Yeah. Just the ability to go through our life yes. and, not have, and not have people do bad things to us because um, the color of our skin or that we're different. Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, media commentator, of course, and panel member of this program's Beauties and the Beast, political roundtable, past president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and an honest-to-goodness economist, the real deal. We don't have many economists around, it appears, Catherine. <laughs> I love what you said in your tweet, an actual economist. <laughs> it occurred to me, I was <laughs> tweeting, you know, she really is, she's well, an economist. There's lots around, but... I, I, I don't think a lot of people are really listening to the more pragmatic economists, let's put it that way, because there's economists that work for, say, labor unions, and naturally they want full-blown socialism and so on. But I, one thing, though, speaking of economists, I was quite intrigued to read in the last few days is a couple of prominent known economists, notably David Dodge, former uh, Bank of Canada governor and um, De Deputy Minister of Finance, 
And Don Drummond, another uh, notable economist with a public sector background as well as a bank economist, and both of them, and they're not, and they're not conservatives. They, these guys have, you know, leaned to the liberal side way more in their career. Both of them were saying how this seeming thrust uh, that this so-called resilient recovery garbage and everything that, was, that Trudeau and his gang have been touting is really bad news. And I thought, well, that's intriguing. If these people that, you know, typically tend to lead on the bigger government, big spending side of the equation are sending out warnings, then maybe we're finally, uh, you know, maybe we're finally getting some truth here. Because well, this is horribly worrisome. You mentioned the GDP drop. Yeah, that was horrendous. Now, let me ask you this, Catherine. Let me, let me just ask you this. For the average person, what does the 38.7% drop in GDP in three months represent? Plus the fact though there was a $120.4 billion deficit in that three-month period. For the average person, what does that mean? It means job loss and a reduction in your standard of living, simply put. <laughs> and that's one quarter. That's one quarter. Now, it was the worst quarter for, for uh, the virus, the of pandemic. Course. So we, I'm, I'm sure we will see improvement. But again, if we pursue the kind of policies that, again, people like Dodge, David Dodge came out and... and uh, weighed in on the other day negatively. If we pursue those kind of policies, we're going to guarantee that the misery continues. And misery for average people, those guys at the top, they're, they're doing fine, and they'll continue to do fine. The Trudeaus, Morneaus, et cetera. Yeah. But, uh, we, we'll, we'll prolong the misery and make this a lot more difficult than it has to be. I've heard a number of people say, well, look, uh, consumers will drive the economy forward. And so what I did was I went back and I grabbed it. And it was very easy. It was right there waiting for me. I went and grabbed uh, a, a, an Ipsos poll for Global News from last year. So this is pre-pandemic. Even then, 48% of Canadians were within $200 of going bankrupt. And, that, and of course, that's worse now. Could, well, yeah, of course. that be better now? Of course. Well, I, exactly. So if you're going pre-pandemic and people were within $200 of declaring bankruptcy, um, what does that say about uh, where we are, actually, what, what the... What the Potential. I'm sorry, I've got power failures here, but my emergency system is kicking in. Uh, what does that say about the spending power of consumers and the ability of the consumer to drive the economy? Well, the consumer is the biggest driver of the economy cumulatively. We, we, you know, within it's about it's roughly sixty percent to two thirds of our gross domestic product. However, as you say, things were going south. Despite all the boasts of Trudeau and his gang, things were going south even before the pandemic hit, that things were on a, a rather shaky footing economically and so on. Pandemic put it right into the, you know, right into the tank uh, very, very quickly. But what, where is this money going to come from? There is some pent-up consumer demand for sure because people of weren't course. spending money for a few months because they were yeah. holed up you know, in their houses. Yeah. So there is a little bit of pent-up demand, but there's no magical pot of money here. And let's not fool ourselves. All governments are massively in debt. If anybody really believes there aren't going to be tax increases, which will reduce consumer spending even further, they're out of their minds. Think about Alberta declaring a $24.2 billion deficit. Yeah. Alberta. One province, and, and Ontario's uh, in, the, in the quagmire as well. It's, it's uh, yeah. horrendous right across the country. 
Okay, so what do you say? We're we're teetering on the brink again before the pandemic. So, no, this is not the time to expand government, take more money out of your average Canadian's pockets, diminish their ability to boost the economy via consumer spending, etc. This is a time that governments should be shrinking their own footprint, their own spending, and goodness knows we've got a lot of potential to do that in Canada. Um, They should be following the reverse of what we're hearing the federal government wants to do. So we now have a new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada whose messaging is already, I think, more effective than that of his predecessor. What is it that you would want to see? And you're a member of the party, and we talked about that last weekend as we were waiting for the results. God knows we waited. You and I were tweeting or exchanging emails (laughs) on Sunday night. (laughs) I think until midnight or so. But uh, what what do you want? What do you see... As far as opportunity and even, yeah, let's say in, let's include responsibility for Mr. O'Toole as leader of the Conservative Party and leader of the official opposition of this country is concerned. Well, I think he's, he's going to and he has to, whoever won would have to start holding this government to account in a very, very serious way. Uh, Andrew Scheer, nice man, but he's been a lame duck now for a long time. <laughs> so he really wasn't stepping up to the plate in that kind of, you know, capacity. So Aaron, I like, I know Aaron. Uh, Aaron's a solid guy, a thoughtful guy, a moderate. You know, yes, he's a small C conservative, but he's certainly a moderate conservative, I guess you could say. And I think he's going to be looking at the real root issues. Your intro there with him talking about the dealing with the U.S., Christy Freeland, let's not forget, she's our finance minister, and people give her credit for the, the North American, you know, the, the NAFTA reboot, I guess, but she almost lost it on a number of occasions there. And, and, you know, that relationship is hugely important to Canada, no matter who wins the U.S. election. So I think that's one relevant thing. But he's got to be holding this government to account. Uh, this government, I think, is the Liberal government. I think they're keen to go to an election sooner rather than later, because all governments are being are popular right now because they're spending our money like crazy. And that's always good for, you know, some votes in the short term. So I think we need to, uh, to look at those economic factors Things like shrinking government, getting some reasonable, you know, reasonable uh, spending levels under control in government without overly taxing uh, average Canadians, and um, and looking at our, our things like our international trade position and whatnot, because that'll boost, that'll be boosting our economy as well. We have about a minute. I'd like you to speak to the issue of teachers returning to the classroom or not returning to the classroom and in Ontario. It's a particularly antagonistic situation between the government and the unions. Yeah, it always is. The unions, the, the teachers' unions, are more militant than any other unions out there. I'm not exactly sure why. We know teachers are exceedingly well paid. We want them to be decently paid, but they are. They're very decently paid. Can retire at 55 with a hugely generous pension and so on. And yet the, the, and, and the former Ontario Liberal government bent over backwards to, to try to, uh, and then cost us all a fortune in the process, to try to, um, you know, meet union demands, and they still were on their bad side. So, I mean, I think, I think the only recourse for governments in not, not just Ontario, but notably Ontario, is start to get into things like charter schools, uh, start to get into uh, alternatives to this, you know, monopoly. And where, Catherine, does the pandemic fit into this? That they keep squandering people's, uh, you know, trust and goodwill. But in terms of going back... All of the, if, if you look at all the health reports and whatnot, the downside of kids not going back is at least as bad as the potential downside of them going back and having some exposure. And there's going to be some, let's not fool ourselves, there's some exposure to the virus. All and, right. 
But I think the good thing about Ontario, too, is they've left a lot of discretion in the hands of the parents, the teachers mm-hmm. themselves, and the school boards themselves. Yeah. Thank you, economist. <laughs> a real one. <laughs> Chadwick Boseman died of colon cancer at age 43. Generational actor, as I said earlier. And diagnosed with stage 3 cancer in 2016, and he performed in movies which were being filmed while he was receiving chemotherapy treatments and between hospitalizations. He died on the same day Major League Baseball celebrated Jackie Robinson Day yesterday, who uh, Chad Bozeman portrayed in the film 42. I, uh, millions of his fans across the, around the world are just absolutely stunned. Uh, Mira Estrada joins us. She's co-host of Cultured on Global News Radio AM 640 in Toronto, and you'll find them on uh, on Twitter at K-U-L-T-U-R underscore D. That's K at K-U-L-T-U-R underscore D. Um, and at Mira Estrada as well. Mira, thank you for taking the time. And it's... Uh, I, I really took note of the fact that, you know, Chadwick Boseman died on the same day that Major League Baseball, I know it's just coincidence, but celebrated Jackie Robinson Day, who he portrayed in the film 42. Yeah, I mean, I know it's... uh, um, The league uh, sent out a tweet saying, you know, is transcendent performance in 42 will stand the test of time, serves as a powerful vehicle to tell Jackie's stories to audience and generations to come. And I think, I mean, there are so many things now. We look back, so many moments of Chadwick so many he just gave us so many gems of wisdom that i know i spoke to you off air about this that now we look back and and see them so differently um even in promoting black panther uh there was a moment this has now gone around it's resurfaced on twitter where he spoke about the impact of the film on two children in particular that had terminal cancer. Yes. And he he really breaks down um, because he said they were holding out to see the film. They actually didn't make it, these two young boys, Ian and Taylor. And he breaks down in this press conference. And now, you know, now we can look back and see at the same time he was having his own personal battle, battle with cancer. Um, and, you know, he held it silent. I think in part because he didn't want to perhaps tell his own story because he saw the bigger purpose of everything that we, he was doing. And I just, um, I, I can't seem to keep it together today. I don't know how many times I've broken down today. Um, I think because you and I have both said, you know, we also, when you have a family history of cancer, yes. this hits very differently as well. Yes, it does. Um, knowing, um, knowing firsthand uh, the pain, the, the, the debilitation where you're going through treatment, and then to know this man while he was doing this the entire time working in the, the Marvel Universe, he carried this with him, and he was working through it and working red carpets and interviews and the physicality of his role. I, I cannot imagine the weight of any of that. No, n- neither can I. And it speaks to unbelievable courage and determination and really a generational, not only a generational performer, but a generational human being. Mm-hmm, for sure. And, no, fan- um, sorry, go ahead. No, and I was just saying, you know, and it's not, you know, what he's left, of, you know, this black iconic superhero for, I think, generations of young black boys and girls, but even 
across races and genders. Even, you know, my my son saw me scrolling through my phone and he said, what happened, mommy? And I, I told him, you know, what happened to Black Panther. And he's like, Black Panther died and my son was shook. Um, so, you know, this is, it, it's going in affecting so many people, um, but he will live on. And that's the gift that he gave of himself. Right. I understand he was also a very personably likable man. Yes. I don't, I have not seen one thing, like every person that came in contact had such great things to say about him. At the same time, I do want to say, it gives us pause to think, let's give the people the flowers while they're alive. Um, there were people that were not that close to him that were critical. He didn't always get, I don't think the roles that he was so worthy of getting, um, you know, and he even, he made he made profound statements, I think, as well. Um, he said in a quote somewhere, you know, about this period, they had said, you know, you may not be the next Sidney Poitier. And he said, but why is it that there are, there's a Chris Pine and a Chris Evans and a Chris O'Donnell and a Chris Hemworth and all these other Chris's, but there can only be one of us at a time. Why do we have to be killed before we get to be there? Um, yeah. You know, so he made these profound statements. Yes. Um, can I ask representation. you? Let me ask you to do this. Uh, could you share your thoughts on racism and diversity and within the world of pop culture, including and perhaps particularly today, on in film? I mean, we we have such a far way to go. Like we like to say that there is inclusion and there is diversity. If you look at any of the award shows, yes, there will be nominations. How many? diverse films actually win these awards. Um, I just think we're so far. We have such a, such a long way to go. I think Black Panther was huge in terms of showing the world that, yes, you can have a fully black cast, even in terms of the accent. We can talk about the accent as well um, and show that this can be a billion-dollar grossing film. Um, but that was one. And this is the problem. There's only one, and it has to be one at a time. And like he said about the Christmas, why is it always one at a time? We are so far behind still in 2020. I think one of the positive uh, possibilities here is that film, for many people, is a common denominator. We all share we all share a, a certain affection for for movies and films, and we all like certain performers, certain actors more because they appeal to us uh, just on a very visceral level. And I think that's an opportunity for people to understand one another a little better, or significantly better, over time, just through this medium that we all share. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, Chadwick was great at that, even, you know, showing us these important figures throughout history, like you said, like Jackie Robinson, like James Brown. Yeah, Morgan exactly. Marshall. Like, he played all of these different... Some amazing work, huh? ...of pop culture, right? Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.